Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my co-host Danny Bessner, and we are very lucky to have with us today two distinguished guests, uh, Asal Rad, the research director at the National Iranian American Council. Uh, sh- her book is The State of Resistance, Pol- Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Uh, and she's joined by Puya Ali Magam, uh, a historian of the modern Middle East at MIT. His book is Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. Asal and Puya have been helping us uh, contextualize and understand modern Iranian history, especially Iran's uh, deeply rewarding and enriching relationship with the United States over the course of the 20th century. Um, but we have asked them here today uh, to talk instead about the protests currently uh, still going on in Iran. So uh, thank you both for uh, coming and agreeing to uh, to help us kind of walk through this. Thank you for having us. It's good to be back with you. Yes. So um, I guess, I mean, we we had done an episode on the protests shortly after they started. We did an interview on the on the protests, but it's been quite a bit of time since then. And I, I guess my first question to the both of you would be, um, what do you make of the longevity of these protests? Uh, Masa Amini died in the custody of the morality police uh, in mid-September. We're now in the beginning of November. Uh, there's no sign really that they're abating. Um, and I, I would say as a sort of sub question to this, how much of these ongoing protests have become, uh, self-sustaining in the sense that the protests over Amini's death began, Iranian security forces cracked down violently, killed protesters, and now that violent crackdown, you know, how much is of, of these ongoing protests is being fueled by the crackdown and kind of, uh, you know, just sort of circling around? So one of the things that in terms of like longevity and specifically how the crackdown itself is facilitating that longevity. Um, and it's interesting because this tactic parallels with a similar tactic used in 1978, the year leading up to the revolution in 1979, um, is that they're using the 40 day and like cycles, these 40 day morning cycles. So traditionally, the 40th day after somebody dies in Iran, it, it marks the end of the of the morning, the traditional morning period. And they're using these 40th days as a way of coming out and protesting again. And so when they're cracking down on protests, meaning they're actually killing people during these protests, every day becomes a 40th day, right? So every day, if, especially certain, uh, certain people's deaths, uh, tend to create more just based based on the fact that their images go viral, right? So those might get a little bit more attention and then marking those 40th days allows them to come out and protest again. So in a certain way, the, the state's crackdown is helping to sustain these protests. And this is precisely what happened in 1978. Now, I'm not saying the conditions of today in 1978 are parallel, but this particular tactic um, is parallel, which is interesting because in 1978, when the at the time the monarchy's forces would kill protesters, the 40th day of their mourning cycles would mark, and it sort of created a calendar for protests, right? It was easy to bring people out because you knew what day 
people were going to organize. And in this case, in the case of the protests that we've seen, there's you know more active days and less active days, but overall it's being sustained. But for instance, on the 40th day after the death of uh, the killing of Masa Amini herself, you saw another sort of surge in protests. So in that sense, I think, yeah, absolutely. The crackdown is facilitating these protests being able to be sustained in certain ways. I would also add as an opportunity to kind of push back against those who would like to credit Gene Sharp <clears throat> for this. Um, Gene Sharp is like a theorist of revolution. He passed away uh, a few years ago, but he was based in Massachusetts. People kind of give him credit for coming up with this, this strategy of protesting, right? The idea is that he wrote that protesters should use specific occasions to come out and protest. And so people then say, oh, Gene Sharp was an innovator of this tactic that Iranians are now using. And that's just not true. This is way before Gene Sharp. Uh, Iranians did this in the, in the 1963-64 uprising when Khomeini used the occasion of Ashura, the anniversary of the martyrdom of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson. The Iranian revolution did the three of these 40-day cycles what the then Shah, the monarch, basically complained as or bemoaned as bereavement tactics. And then you see this also in the 2009 uprising. Uh, I think one thing that kind of gives the protesters another opportunity is that Iran has a political calendar, right? It has a political calendar that it has uh, essentially formulated since the revolution, like the anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. embassy, right? So that's a day... November 4th, 1979, that has since then been a day where the Iranian government wants protesters to come out, but not to protest it, but to protest the U.S. government. So the idea that occasions exist on the calendar for social movement activity is something that is kind of programmed into the calendar, and, and including just basic Fridays, right? So right now you see protests happen sporadically throughout the week now, specifically at universities because it's still a relatively space safe relatively safe space for protest activity but then all of a sudden you see a spike on fridays because fridays is a day of rest in iran so a lot of people have the opportunity they're not they don't have to go to classes they don't have to go to work so they have the opportunity to come out on fridays so every friday we've seen a spike in protests yeah actually there's another one coming up which will pertain to this particular set of protests because we've seen how universities and students have become, right? It's like very youth led. And so the, the university has become a central location for these protests to be held. And you have on December 7th, so we're a month out right now, but on December 7th, it's Ruzadan uh, Jew Students Day. And so that has also been, to, to Puya's point, this like calendar that we talk about, that fact that it's a political calendar, that is a likely day where you'll see another spike in protests, especially at universities. If I may say something about Student Day, because it's such an important day of radical protest. Student Day was born in 1953, months after the U.S. and the British overthrew Iran's democratically elected government. Then Vice President comes to Iran to kind of give his public endorsement of the coup government. And Iranians knew uh, uh, about the U.S. hand and the overthrow of Dr. Mossadegh. So protests emerged at the University of Tehran, and three. this is before the Kent State Massacre in the United States, and three students were killed. That becomes, December 7th becomes the unofficial day of radical student protests from 1953 all the way to 79 against the Shah and his U.S. backers. After the revolution, the Iranian government tried to kind of 
pacify this day and kind of defang it of its radical meaning. And it becomes this day where regime officials basically go to the universities and give speeches about the role of the universities and the role of engineers in developing the country and continuing this anti-imperialist struggle. And they kind of, the government kind of co-ops this day. In 2009, we see the return of the real National Student Day, where when the Green Movement protesters were German underground and then started to reemerge on specific days of action. One of those days, six months after the um, fraudulent election results, were uh, December 7, 2009. So I, I think it's very fair, it's, although it's super hard to predict how this protest movement will unfold and what's going to happen, I think it's a fair, easy statement to make that December 7th, 2022 will be a pretty significant day of student radical action in Iran. Guys, I have a question and it might be kind of ignorant, so forgive me. So I, of course, focus primarily on the United States. And, and one of my, my hot takes is that protest really doesn't accomplish much in terms of actual political change here, uh, effectively due to the nature of the American state and how it's been insulated from popular pressure in a variety of regards, and also the nature of the U.S. military. Could you maybe just talk for a second, like the literal mechanism of how protest functions in Iran when we're talking from like just a literal state society perspective? And, and what are what are the mechanisms of actual change besides, you know, literally storming buildings and taking them over? Well, I think one of the things that's always been a part of Iranian protests historically is uh, the use of labor strikes in 1905 and in 1979, the Bazaar, which is a you know significant merchant class, be- becoming involved, boycotting uh, and closing their shops, the- having an economic element that is in addition to the sort of protest element is one of the things that's important. In Iran currently, you've already had, preceding these protests, you've had uh, a boost in the labor movement, in part because the the situation for the Iranian worker has become so desperate and so bad in recent years as the Iranian economy is tanked, right? So, So even before these protests and in various iterations of previous protests in recent years, 2017, 2018, 2019, you see workers lower middle class Iranians becoming more involved because they're being hit so hard. And so that, I think, is one one way in which uh, one mechanism or tool that protesters can use. But what's very interesting about these protests right now is acts of civil disobedience, which I don't think we've seen in similar fashion. So it's not just taking over buildings or sort of fearlessly confronting the security forces doing things like that. It's the fact that women specifically are going out without their hijab. That is an act of civil disobedience in Iran. And they're doing it in a way that that hasn't been done before. And what the, the element that adds to it is through these acts of civil disobedience, they're changing in certain ways, this, not only individually, but the space, right? So that's part of the policing that we don't necessarily talk about. We talk about policing women's autonomy and their attire in Iran, but we don't talk about the fact that it's also the secondary consequence is policing the entire public space. Because it's not just a matter of your personal autonomy, it's also what the public space looks like and control over that public space. So it's how people see you uh, within that state and your attire. So those acts of civil disobedience, I think, are important as well. So how does that relate to the the mechanism of state? Where does that intersect with the state? Because um, I totally see that as like the, 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 the sort of the... the, the 
the geographic space of society, you know, is being expanded in particular ways. Does that interact with the literal state? And, and if so, where in terms of mechanisms of, of, I don't even want to say policy change because it's much deeper than policy, but I think what you're getting, I, you understand what I'm getting at when I say policy change. You know, I just want, I want to follow up. What do you mean by interacting with the state? Yeah, yeah. So let's say the state says, like, we, we now have a different policy. We're not going to use the morality police in this way. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to have different forms of elections. Or we're going to have literal different representatives in various governance groups within the state. Literally, the state. So I, I've been saying this for weeks now. So I think Asa's going to think of me as a broken record when she hears this. I think that, and history is very instructive here, the Iranian state, when it's faced with domestic challengers, protesters, uprisings, it does not budge. It does not want to show weakness, right? So, and then this is because they themselves came to power through revolution. And they and they have the experience of 1978, 79, and they saw the Shah, the, the monarch uh, against which the uprising was launched, um, was very indecisive. The Shah had you know, advisors in his ears, one was saying, you know, Shah, you have to show strength and decisive action, you know, implement martial law and a military government. And the other, and there's other people in his ears saying, no, Shah, you need to kind of like amnesty political prisoners. And in doing so, uh, you know, increase wages for, you know, oil strikers. And in doing so, you'll be able to placate a lot of the opposition and people will then uh, maybe go back home. And so he didn't know what to do. So he did both. He showed compromise by releasing political prisoners and improving wages, and then also implemented martial law and a military government. And to the opposition, that showed, um, one, that the state is being very inconsistent. It's showing weakness by compromising, but also at the same time, it's implementing martial law, and that became a new target of protester ire. So the Iranian government has learned from that because it came to power through revolution. Anytime there's been a challenge to it, it has doubled down on repression and and, and 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 the inability to compromise. So 2006, 2019, these are both really good examples. When the uprising happened against the so-called election results of Mahmoud, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the government basically dealt with one week of an uprising. And when I say uprising, I mean the third day of the protest, June 15, 2009, 3 million people came out just in one city, the, the capital city, Tehran. The following Friday, so a week later, the, uh, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei gave a sermon saying that the protests are a, secu- a national security threat, the imperialists are at the door, all of which was not true. And then it said that the Guardian Council has surveyed all the election complaints and has ratified the elections. They were a sound election. And um, basically, and the Khamenei said that henceforth there will be a full-scale security crackdown. Whatever blood is spilled, it will be on the hands of the opposition leaders who claimed election fraud themselves. In 2019, when the, when the government um, removed the gas subsidy, there was an uprising about, I think, maybe four days long. Um, and the government not only did not backtrack, but really went after demonstrators and maybe killed anywhere between 1,000 to 1,500 in the span of four days, much more lethal in terms of this crackdown compared to 2009 and now. So even with this, it, it, it won't publicly compromise, right? It, it's basically saying we are willing to discuss these issues only when people basically calm down and go home. 
And the problem with that is that if in six months the protesters have basically gone home, if they have gone home, the government will be like, oh, we put this down. Why should we compromise now? So this is why it's, it, this is why a lot of people think that the Iranian government is incapable of reforming because, first of all, it doesn't want to show weakness in the face of demonstrators, and also because whatever reform legislation that was passed in the late 90s and early 2000s was always vetoed by right. the unelected bodies of the government. So that leads me to the question, then I'll, we'll get back to Derek. Is the only way this ends? But here, let me ask this. Who is the political in the Schmidtian sense here? Who is the one who could just say, we're done with it? Is it the military? You know, who, who is the one who, who you would need to turn to basically make, or, or like social group you would need to turn to basically make like a genuine, lasting reformist or revolutionary change? Who's the power holder? I mean, I think the historically the military plays an essential role in the state, right? The power of the state is in the military. And in 1978 and 79, when the revolution was happening, part of it is defections in the military that allows that to occur. But what's, so to Puya's point in terms of learning, right, how the Islamic Republic, the architects of this now state um, were born in a revolution and what they learned from that process is in part why there's the IRGC, right? You have a separate, I mean, you have a parallel military basically. And the purpose of the IRGC is to protect the revolution itself and what is the symbol of that revolution, which is, which in the post-revolutionary era became uh, the supreme leadership uh, and this unelected body that's at the top. So in that sense, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a debatable thing. If you have, if you had military, even if you had military defections, would that, that would certainly be significant for the protest movement. But if the IRGC doesn't defect, now do you have a civil war, right? Now you have a technically not even, it's not even a civil war between civilians. Now you have technically two military bodies Intra-elite. that fighting each other. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like Rome, so I basically. think the IRGC is very important. This is, this is one of the big differences between the Iranian revolution and now. So uh, people, it, you know, Iranians are um, very optimistic about this uprising. And I understand why, you know, hope is a very powerful thing. Um, but... The, the, the Iranian revolution happened after a 14-month-long uprising in 1978-79 against the Shah. And just like Asal said, the more the Shah dis- – he basically was not prepared for an internal uprising. He had the secret police, the imperial guard that was designed to protect the family of the Shah, the royal family, and he had the military. The Shah unleashed the military on protesters, right? These are conscript soldiers who are trained in nationalism and defending the territorial integrity of the country against external threats like the Iraqis under Saddam Hussein. And now we're being dispatched to shoot on demonstrators, many of whom were friends and family and neighbors. And so they just began one by one, by the hundreds, by the thousands, taking off their, you know, their belts and everything and joining the movement. So you know, there's this really good study done by Charles Kurzman uh, called The Unthinkable Revolution. And it basically shows that the more the Shah dispatched soldiers, the more defections occurred. By the time of the revolution, fifth, the, the, the military had been depleted to about 55% of its fighting force. And the commanders were reluctant to bring them out of their barracks because the more they brought them out of their barracks, the more they suffered from defections. The Iranian government today... This is why this is why we're only like six or seven weeks into it, and people are very optimistic about the revolution. This is why I think it's still a little bit early because the Iranian government is far more prepared 
for internal unrest than the Shah ever was. And then the flip side is the population is not nearly as organized as the opposition was in 78, 79. And the IRGC is a really good example. Before the Shah's government even fell, Khomeini, per the advice of his lieutenants, Ayatollah Montazeri, ordered the creation of the IRGC to safeguard the leadership of the revolution for a revolution that was imminent, hadn't even happened yet. Because the Shah didn't, because the opposition didn't trust the Shah's military, and uh, essentially because it was the military that brought that took Mossadegh out of power by this back by the CIA, and therefore they feared that if the revolution was going to be successful, then it could also be overthrown. So that's why people like my grandfather were put to flight. You know, as a second star general, these people became threats. The organizational capacity of the opposition in 78-79 ensured the emergence, not just of the IRGC, but later, multiple layers of security forces to deal with internal unrest. For all of the government's failings, it has mastered two things, how to put down demonstrators and how to organize a guerrilla war in case Iran is ever occupied by the United States. For these two things, the Iranian government has a black belt. I mean, I largely agree with what... what Puya saying, it's sort of, I don't know, going back to, I do think one thing, I do think that these protests are different. Um, if for no other reason, just the culmination of grievances, right? There's, there's, I mean, human beings are human beings. There's sometimes we talk about these things like they're, they're, they're playing like a game of risk, but we're really just dealing with people and they have a boiling point. And if you look at how Iranians have suffered, especially over the last five or so years, uh, the combination of an economic downturn, pressure from outside, uh, corruption and mismanagement on the inside, um, the COVID pandemic, the fact that that was mismanaged, thousands of people dying that didn't have to die because it was mismanaged again by that very state. Um, and the fact that you have all of these grievances across the board and how has how has the Islamic Republic responded? Oh, we're going to tighten restrictions. We're going to mm -hmm. give even less political freedom, even mm -hmm. less social freedom. So you can understand from the point of view of just basic human psychology, and 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 this is being expressed in the protests, in the actual slogans that are being used. They are using slogans that say this is a revolution. They're using slogans that say they are prepared to die, that they will avenge those who have died. And so that that shows you a population that's really sort of reached the end of their rope. So, so for a lot of it, and there's some of this discourse exists too, where it's like, even if the state gave concessions at this point, there is a sentiment. Now, I, I we can't decide how widespread that sentiment is, but at least there is a thread of the sentiment within the Iranian populace currently that it's too late. That even yeah. if they gave concessions, that doesn't matter yeah. because they only see it. Nothing the Shah would have done would have placated the opposition then, and nothing the Iranian government could do now will placate its opposition today. The fundamental difference, however, and, and this is a tough pill for a lot of Iranians to swallow, is the Shah had no support, none. Right, the Iranian government has is facing widespread anger from an aggrieved populace, legitimately aggrieved populace. But the difference is that the Iranian government today still has some support, and that some support I can't quantify, even if it's a small minority. It's a minority support, a small minority support the Shah never had, and that minority support is pretty diehard. That makes it a little bit different. That's why. 
you know, revolution is is less unlikely. It doesn't mean it's impossible compared to 78, 79. And insurrection and war and civil war and civil unrest is more a likelihood, in my opinion, than any other time in Iran's 43-year history, unfortunately. I mean, the only reason I would I would agree with in terms of, we don't know, right? None of us, especially, I mean, we're all historians, so no, no, one's, no one's here to predict stuff because we don't like to do that. Rightfully so, because most predictions end up being wrong. You know, mm-hmm. like, we don't know. And so there are, you know, everything under the sun is sort of possible in this situation, but we can talk about likelihoods based on history. Yeah. And what we know about this, state, which is what I said, by the way, I said likelihood, right? Yeah, no, I, I, know, I, I can't, know. I'm not making predictions. No way. No, we definitely have to use all of the important words to make sure that we're not, we're not saying anything definitively, but when you talk about likelihoods, it's because you're looking at the makeup of the situation that you're, you're in, right? When, the Shah left. The the Shah left because he could. I mean, eventually he was allowed to enter the United States, right? He went to all these different countries. They had places to go. This state does not, in the same respect. And so the and especially the sort of ideological. So that base that Puy is referring to, regardless of its numbers, that there is a significant belief within that base that this is about their survival. Right. They're not going to be. And and in part, it's because of some of the rhetoric. Uh, and I, Actually, we haven't seen it among the protesters. I haven't seen it, at least among the protesters. Maybe it does exist. But like from the outside, there's a lot of um, sort of vengeful rhetoric. Right. And that doesn't lead anybody to believe that they, they're going to have a place in a future state. So that creates an atmosphere where they believe in their mind that basis survival is, is going to be something that they would have to fight out. This is how it, it's being perceived. Um, where at, and, and I mean, and that is actually even the consequence in a revolution, right? After the revolution um, in 1979, it, there was a very short period of what seemed like, you know, all these political parties were that were involved in the revolution had come together in an uh, interim government that there was going to be inclusivity, that their political prisoners were freed, but that fell apart very quickly. And, and, post-revolutionary eras tend to be extremely bloody. So so how it's that type of rupture in a society, unfortunately, doesn't tend to happen in a very like peaceful and clean way, whether it becomes a civil war, whether it does uh, become a revolution. Essentially, the difference between those two states, between is it going to be a revolution or is it going to be a civil war? If it is either of those, is will they back down? And that's where I think people like Puya and I are concerned is that it doesn't, there's nothing in the 43 years that we've seen that would make it seem like they would back down. Whereas the Shah was willing to leave. He left the country. You have to imagine a scenario in which, for instance, someone like Khamenei does the same thing. It's harder to imagine. One of the tools that the, the Iranian government uses to put down protests that I think is probably, I would, I would guess for, for most people in the West, the, the most um, unfamiliar as opposed to police or even the IRGC or morality police. These are things that, that have some analog. Uh, 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 the, I'm talking about the besiege, uh, the besiege paramilitaries. Um, I wonder if you guys could give people a little context for this institution how it emerged from and how it went from basically a force of volunteers fighting the Iraqis in a, in a, you know, 
war, regional war, to a tool that the regime pulls out to uh, brutalize protesters and, and the role that it plays, that it has played in, in sort of modern uh, efforts to suppress these kinds of uh, unrest. Yeah, so this is this is what I meant when I said that the that the current government, unlike the Shah, has multiple layers of security forces. Uh, one are the Basij militia, the paramilitaries, right? They, as you said, they their inception, you know, took place during the Iran Iraq War, where the government was basically strategizing that it is facing an uh, uh, is outmatched against a U.S., Soviet, French, West German, um, British supplied Iraqi military. Um, but the one thing the Iranians had in comparison that gave them an advantage was strength in numbers. So Iran is a much more populous country. Uh, it was and is a, more than twice the size of Iraq, um, more both geographically and in terms of population. So it harnessed those, that population strength for battlefield um, tactics in, in the most devastating way. So Basij uh, volunteers, uh, some of them were teenage boys, were used literally as minesweepers, right? So when Iraq occupied Iranian territory, it entrenched that um, occupation, right? So it created uh, trenches and, and put minefields there so that if the Iranians wanted to retrieve their territory, they wouldn't be able to do it. And so these these Basij volunteers uh, were basically dispatched to go literally step on those mines, explode themselves and the mines, and clear the way for Iranian tank battalions to move forward. And that's how they retrieved the Iranian territory after two years of occupation, inch by inch, life by life, though, unfortunately. And that's why the Iranian death toll is far higher than the, Iranian, than the Iraqi death toll in the war. When the war ends, the, the Basij um, were seen as, as basically a diehard, loyal, ideological force. The war was over, but why disband this very useful organizational unit. And, and this is one of the things about the Iranian government and Khomeini in particular is they were institution builders where the Shah was like a one bullet leader. You, you take him out and the entire monarchy faced crumbling. Whereas Iran today is a system built on massive institutions, right? The entire government structure is an interlocking web itself. And then the parallel military forces. So the, the government after the war that ended in 88 did not want to disband the Basij. It was a useful, ideologically loyal organization and has essentially morphed into becoming a branch of the IRGC, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, um, that is also used with militarized law enforcement forces um, to help put down demonstrators uh, throughout this 43-year history, essentially. I think there's another, uh, because if we're talking about like the Basij, right, this like paramilitary militia concept, it's also important to remember that Iran is supporting militias outside of its own country, right? Um, and that the, the state's narrative, the Islamic Republic rhetoric is that of resistance. They are, they promote resistance, a resistance culture. And so they use that rhetoric to justify uh, what are actually, they're like, strategies, right? These are strategies that are laid out. Why you have, why they support particular uh, movements in particular countries, they will say is for, you know, this revolutionary resistance type culture in the same way that the U.S. uses the language of freedom when it wants to carry out things in its own national interest, right? Like we use the language of democracy and freedom when in reality we're carrying out our own natural national interests. 
that that's why we do every war that we have. It's not because we're actually there to liberate people. I mean, Biden literally said in the Afghanistan withdrawal, our work is not nation building. We're not here to do that. We were here to fight terrorism, right? So at the end of the war, 20 year war in Afghanistan, this was basically like, the way that the U.S. talked about it. So the the Islamic Republic uses this notion of resistance. Um, but in fact, what it's doing, what its regional policies are, are acting in its own national interest, what it sees as its own national interest, protecting the national security of the state. Um, and by so doing, having these other militias that it can also, I mean, Puya, I don't know, you can maybe, maybe you'll disagree with what I'm saying, but it can also use those. That, so it's when the amount of force that it could potentially Right. These are all potentials because we don't know because everybody can defect. Every, these are again, these are people. Anybody can decide to defect up up to the IRGC itself. It can, but we just haven't seen that yet. The, the other thing I'm going to add is that um, earlier I said the Iranian government has a black belt in putting down uh, protesters as domestic challengers while also pre- having a black belt in ensuring that if it's ever occupied by the United States, the way the United States occupied neighboring Afghanistan and neighboring Iraq, it won't be able to stay in or, or prolong that occupation. The Basij is kind of the, 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 the quintessential force that's prepared for both, right? So it's used against domestic challengers, it's used against peaceful protesters, but it's also trained in irregular guerrilla warfare. So if the United States, and, and this is, has always been a possibility, especially after 9-11, that the United States would invade or occupy the country. The Basij militia is also designed and trained so that that occupation won't last and it, it won't be a, a walk in the park for the United States. This is why we always say that those people who advocate a U.S. invasion of the country out of their hate for the Iranian government were like, you guys have to understand that uh, it went bad in Afghanistan. It went bad in Iraq for the United States. The Iranian government has been preparing for this for 43 years. It would go even worse uh, for the United States and for Iran as a country and as a people, should, should something like this ever happen in Iran? So the passage is kind of like, uh, has a foot in both doors, you know, anti-imperial resistance against occupation, but also paramilitaries unleashed on um, protesters within the country. Can I add actually, so I, I, Puya, I'm actually very interested in what you think about what I'm about to say, but I would say that the the, the sort of possible hope that exists for protesters, right? For those who are protesting. Um, Because we're laying out right now, since we were talking about like state versus protesters, we're laying out what the state theoretically could do, right? It's its forces, what it can do. But if you look at like, should what should protesters be hopeful about? I do think that, because a lot of what we're talking about, we're talking about the passage, we're talking about the IRGC, these were bodies that were born in the revolution and took shape during the Iran-Iraq war in the early years after the revolution, right? This is when there was a clear invasion of their country. And it was, look, the, I think, I don't think we can discount the kind of ideological or, or the, the atmosphere, the revolutionary atmosphere of that moment, coupled with Right. The the idea that the revolution was this resistance to uh, imperialism, that was the language that was used for the revolution, and then having been invaded by another state that was backed by those very imperialist powers. So all of that sort of created almost this perfect narrative for how these entities were created. But we don't have that now. Right. So I don't know that even though maybe, maybe many of them are ideologically bound, I don't know that it, it I don't think that you I mean, I certainly know you don't have the same atmosphere. 
This is not a revolutionary atmosphere. This is if it is, it's against the state itself, right? It is actually a revolutionary atmosphere, but, this, but, but not but in the favor is, of the Islamic Republic. But this is why the Iranian government portrays the protesters as being part of a Western conspiracy to to speak a language that resonates with that Basij and RIGC rhetoric and ideological discourse that's rooted in history. That is not, I am not saying that the protesters are part of a Western conspiracy. The Iranian government always says so. Says so in 2009, says so in 2019, it's saying so today. Iranians have their own agency, they have their own legitimate grievances, and they're protesting not because the U.S. killed Massa Amini, but because the Iranian government did. Uh, the Iranian government has a supreme leader that is in place for the rest of his life. The Iranian government is the one that has a morality police and has the economic mismanagement and the corruption and the human rights abuses. But the Iranian government always likes to cast its challengers as part of the Western conspiracy, and it fits into that revolutionary anti-imperialist rhetoric that does resonate with at least certain factions of the Basij and IRGC. That's fair. That's and that's and that I agree with. I, I do think that there's certainly, but I don't know if it's as if it will maintain. Because again, this was a question of how do you actually go about like what do you need in order for this to be a revolution? And I think part of the equation are those defections. And I think part of the equation is defections from not just the traditional military, but also from the IRGC. And I think the the thought can come from maybe understanding that the this rev, this moment is revolutionary for the opposite reason it's the other side that's actually revolutionary you also need leadership and the interesting thing is um like Khomeini, Montazeri, Khamenei, Talagani, these were all the leaders of the Iranian revolution and they had credibility because they had all been political prisoners for during the Shah's regime right so Khomeini was arrested he was exiled Montazeri was uh, once Khomeini's one-time designated successor was made to listen to the torture of his own son while they were both in solitary confinement. Um, today, I would say the, the 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 three or four names that come to mind do not have the same legitimacy. They have a lot of political baggage behind them. There's one that has political bona fides in the sense that if the Iranian Revolution had leadership. Uh, were credible leaders because they had paid political dues in terms of the years each of them spent behind bars, then I would say that um, the name that, I, that keeps being presented to me um, is uh, Hamed Ismailiun. He's a Canada-based dentist who was born and raised in Iran uh, and did, I think, maybe all of his training, dental training in Iran. Um, and his wife and daughter died in the... Uh, the Iranian downing of the Ukrainian airline um, on June, on January, I think it's like 6, 2020. And he, he doesn't have the same political baggage that some of these would be or want to be leaders have. Not only does he not have that baggage, he has, unfortunately for him, he has this credibility in that he is, you know, he, he, he didn't choose his political life. It shows him in the sense that the Iranian government killed his wife and daughter by shooting down that civilian airliner. And so if, if there's a lack of leadership, there is a potential to be for it to be filled, but not by the people who have been presenting themselves as the alternative leadership for the past 40 years, 43 years. Well, then there's also the, the people inside of the country, right? So there's, I mean, I, I always say if you're looking for leadership, 
it's in Evin prison, right? There's a reason why the Islamic Republic arrests labor activists, arrests human rights activists, or just why they have political prisoners. Why do political prisoners exist? Because they pose, uh, they pose a challenge by being able to organize people around what they are talking about. Well, why do you put someone like Nastya Sutuda in prison over and over again? Because she has a voice. She's recognized. Her name is recognized not only outside of the country, but in the country itself. Um, and so there are, I mean, labor activists that have been uh, detained and imprisoned even before these, these protests. There are, and n- notice none of these people are former officials of the Islamic Republic with, or people who have, because, you know, I mean, the Green Movement, for instance, and Pui, you can speak to this much better than I can, but the Green Movement had a sort of a natural leader because it was a political issue that created the protest, that sparked the protest, I should say. And then obviously it evolved into protests that went against the state altogether. Um, but it sort of naturally lent itself to who was the, the organizing figure around it. But Mir Hussein Musavi was part of the Islamic Republic, regardless, right? The, these are still, so it's a question of, are there leaders that exist from within the 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 post-revolutionary nation or does the leadership come strictly outside of that but even in that case those people exist within the country people who have been on the front lines for decades fighting for the very things that these protesters are also now calling for so so i understand the the desire to lift up iranians within the country who are paying political dues in, in iran's political prisons for sure um, but, you know, historical precedent in the Iranian context shows us that exiled leaders can have a political future in the country, Khomeini being the most obvious example. He was an exile for 14 years. Um, so, you know, for me, it's really about credibility. Are they tainted by their relationship with foreign governments? And what are their political bona fides, right? And so in that case... You know, some of the leadership in the in the expatriate community or the Iranian diaspora that is trying to prop up their own people, there's a big question, in my opinion, of credibility. Um, but then there are also people within the country, but also outside of the country, who still have a foot in the country, like Hamid Ismailion, that um, c- could be the, the you know the less polarizing figure that everyone could get behind. Yeah, I agree with that point. I see. What you're, yeah, I definitely can can see that as well. I wanted to get uh, both of you to comment on the parallel situation that seems to be happening in Sistan and Baluchistan province, which is doesn't seem directly connected to the uh, to the death of Masamini. Sistan and Baluchistan is always or seem seemingly perpetually in in some state of unrest, but it it has there has been an escalation uh, in recent weeks. Uh, there was just I think another. Um, you know, violent incident today. I don't have all the details on it, but there was uh, one a few weeks ago that was, uh, you know, I think scores of people were killed. Um, can you talk a little bit about the context for that unrest and and whether you see any I- interaction between what's happening in Sistan and Baluchistan and the Amini protests, other than, you know, that they're both sort of putting pressure uh, on the Iranian government at the same time. And also... Uh, since we're talking about unrest in a, a predominantly Sunni region, maybe talk you could talk a little bit about the inflections of Kurdish sentiment that have emerged in the Amini protests in terms of, uh, you know, she was an Iranian Kurdish woman. The, the Kurdish community in Iran has longstanding grievances. How has that kind of uh, contributed to that, that piece of things? 
So I would say that uh, these are compl- complicated questions, right? So I don't think I have an answer for you that's not complicated. I'll, I'll say this by virtue of, of my own research, right? The thing about the uprising in 2009 was that a lot of people didn't care about Mir Hussein Musavi. So people often talk about that uprising as a reformist uprising. A lot of people could care less about Mir Hussein Musavi. They got on board with him as a way to use the space of his campaign to protest the state itself. So anyone that had a beef with the Iranian government began to gather underneath the canopy or the umbrella of Mir Hussein Musavi's campaign and, and post-election crisis. I would say that right now, there are so many people aggrieved by the Iranian government that they are using, I'm not, I'm not saying they're taking advantage of it, but they are, they are using the historical moment to come out and express their own frustrations and their own anger and their own legitimate grievances and their own demands. And so in that sense, for instance, the Iranian Kurds, you know, they have long sought autonomy. Some within the Kurdish community in Iran have sought secession. And they're highlighting the fact that Masa Amini was an Iranian Kurd. The only issue is that Masa Amini or or Jina Amini um, was not arrested and killed because she was a Kurd. She was arrested because she was a woman and she was deemed to be supposedly inappropriately wearing her hijab. And that inappropriate hijab sent a political signal of defiance of the state. That's why she was arrested, right? But, you know, the the Iranian Kurds now want to highlight the fact that she was Kurdish to rally for their own cause, and which is, you know, they have their own grievances for sure. In Sistan, Baluchistan, the the Baluchis also have more religious grievances and also economic ones. So this is one of the more remote and impoverished areas of the country. Um, And being of the Sunni minority, uh, they often are targeted for religious persecution. Uh, Iran is one of the world's only Shiite majority countries, whereas their minorities, Shiites are minorities almost everywhere else in the Muslim world, and they're usually persecuted. In Iran, the inverse is true. The Shiites are the majority. It's a Shiite clergy that's in power, essentially. And the Sunnis now feel extremely vulnerable and for good reason. So I can't tell you that I can't tell you what was the actual timeline in terms of events, but I would say that anyone that has a beef right now is coming out to protest or to target or to strike or do whatever it can against the Iranian government within the country. Yeah, I mean, I would largely agree with all of that. Um, and, and add, you know, it's um, historically in Iran, especially since the, basically since the 19th century, right? Like the current ge- geography of Iran essentially takes shape at that time because there are land losses that occur during like the great game between the British and the Russians that are trying to vie for not just like power and influence, but are actually trying to take like land as well. Um, and so there is a, there exists, at least within the Iranian psyche, this sort of trauma from land loss. So, I mean, I, it would be, it's, it's interesting within this moment that is uh, this revolutionary moment, right? Where you have these potential like separatist like movements, how much support there would be within the larger revolutionary movement um, of, you know, the, what we were seeing of people who want to topple the state then what is their sort of like thoughts of what that state would look like? Because like I said, traditionally, 
like Iran's territorial integrity has been very important to the Iranian national psyche. Um, but on the other, on the flip side of that is that technically all of these people are, to Puya's point, they're all united on one thing. They have very legitimate grievances against the Islamic Republic. So how they would be able to work together would be sort of, I'm just thinking out loud. It's interesting because on one hand you have that um, traditional thinking of territorial integrity, but then you also have them having this unified thing of being against the Islamic Republic. So it would be interesting to see how that plays out. This is one of the sources of both hope and anxiety for anyone who watches or monitors the Iranian situation. There's hope when you see teenage women fearlessly facing down a very vaunted security apparatus, right? There's, there's, there's inspiration and there's hope in that, right? When we hear in the United States that the future is going to be female or woman-led, you, you really kind of feel that when you're seeing these protesters in Iran, and that's a beautiful thing. The flip side is to what Asal said, you, you also kind of got to zoom out and look at this region and you see a bunch of failed states, mass exoduses of people by the millions who are drowning in boats in the Mediterranean. And you just really worry about, you, you're hopeful and also worried about what's possible. And I think there's a legitimate grounds for both those sentiments. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That And that's, I think that's when you're having a real conversation. You're having a real conversation when you can, when we are all hopeful, right. And, and, and I think realistically, so I'm not saying the hopefulness is, is unrealistic. I think that that's what I mean when I say, I think this moment is different, but, but also you have to sort of put your, you know, analyst hat on and say, but these are also very real situations that can occur. So in the process, if there is this sort of process and discourse about understanding the current moment, where it can lead and how it can, we should also be thinking of how we can prevent those types of outcomes, right? Not just what we can gain, but thinking about what are the potential downsides so that you can mitigate those things. So I'm saving the best for last here, I guess, but uh, I want to talk about, as our kind of final question here, uh, w the role that the United States is playing or the role that the United States could be playing in a productive sense uh, as these protests are going on. Uh, as you are uh, both aware, Joe Biden was in California yesterday on Thursday, we're recording this Friday, November 4th, and told uh, a crowd at a campaign stop that we're going to free Iran. That's a direct quote. Don't worry, we're going to free Iran. They're going to free themselves pretty soon. So we can we can talk about how harmful that kind of rhetoric is uh, in terms of actually supporting uh, the protesters. Uh, but also, obviously, the big issue here is U.S. sanctions. And it, there's this perverse dynamic where sanctions are effectively meant to immiserate the people of the target country so much that they rise up and overthrow the regime on our behalf. They do our, our uh, dirty work for us. Um, and it, but they create, instead, they create this dynamic, they create a bunker mentality, they create a ra rally around the flag effect. And also, you know, in immiserating people, it's, it's very hard to get somebody to worry about politics when they can't get insulin or they can't get food or they can't get medicine. So you create this situation where I, I think they work in cross purposes. So I, I'd like to get both of you to to sort of comment, one, on the rhetoric and, and two, on the role that um, sanctions are playing in, you know, either supporting or making things more difficult. I suspect you will both agree they're making things more difficult, but take it away. So this is, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to give a disclaimer 
and then pass the buck to Asa and then have Asa pass it back to me. If, are you good with that, Asa? Sure. <laughs> I, I, you guys, the disclaimer is that I, I don't know. I know you guys are into into the political space and you're watching things unfold in Iran, but I will I will also tell you the the parameters for discussing exactly the question you just asked, Derek, have extremely narrowed. If you say if any one of us say anything critical of the United States or critical of sanctions, it's going to be a massive campaign against us to make sure that the conversation stays focused on anything but what you just brought up. So I think it's very important actually to be able to have these conversations, to ask those tough questions, and to keep the parameters of the debate as wide as possible, because that's actually healthy. That's how we need to be having these conversations now, right now, at this very moment, not tomorrow, not yesterday, now. Well, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that's part of why I was trying to say uh, what I was trying to say earlier about like, we have to be able to have very honest conversations that can be right. Because if we say things like the, for instance, the Islamic Republic has uh, paramilitary militias outside of the country. It has the IRGC. It has these things. None of those is to, those are just facts on the ground. None of those are to state that's something that one supports because they are pointing out that they are facts on the ground. But if we do not, if we stop engaging in facts, then we're not having conversations anymore, right? We're just shouting platitudes. And so I think, for instance, in this question that Derek, you raised about, you know, the role of the U.S. and sanctions. If you're talking about sanctions specifically, here's the thing. So there are very real consequences to sanctions. That does not mean that the protests that currently are happening are because of sanctions, right? And I think Puya mentioned this earlier, right? The fact that it's an authoritarian state has nothing to do with sanctions. The fact that um, there's the morality police has nothing to do with sanctions. The fact that Masa Amini was killed has nothing to do with sanctions. And the deep held, the deeply held grievances of the state, the legitimate grievances that people have are not because of sanctions. But there is one grievance that is a part of it, and that's economic grievances, right? It's not the whole story, but it's certainly part of the story. Because if we don't talk about economic grievances, then we're leaving a huge part of it out, right? Like when we look at protests in 2017, 2018, 2019, they were sparked by economic grievances. They were, sp- And that's why they centered more around lower middle class and working class Iranians, because this is a vulnerable population that has lost its buying power. It has, they have lost their jobs. They have lost their savings. They have lost their livelihoods. And that is certainly in part to do with the corruption and mismanagement of the state itself, but also certainly to do with sanctions. It's not a coincidence that they've um, suffered under hyperinflation over the last five years since U.S. sanctions were reimposed. Listen, the policy is called, this is the U.S. using its own rhetoric. The policy is called maximum pressure. That's what it's called. I didn't name it that. The U.S. government named it that because that was the intention of the policy. The intention was to bear pressure on, now uh, the discourse is it was meant to bring pressure onto the government. But you can't do that in this fashion without also bringing pressure onto the civilians in that country. Uh, You know, we use human rights language right now, which is important to do. We use human rights language to describe what's going on in Iran. These are human rights abuses, and these uh, the abusers should be held accountable. Human rights language is also used to discuss sanctions. 
It was this, the, the United Nations, um, multiple human rights organizations during the COVID pandemic called for an easing of sanctions on Iran because it was impeding the flow of essential goods. Joe Biden, Joe Biden said this in April of 2020. He said that despite humanitarian exemptions, the current state of U.S. sanctions are preventing the flow of humanitarian goods to Iran, and that should be addressed given the pandemic. Now, he came into office and never addressed it. So we know this. This is on record. This is what U.S. officials have said themselves, that th- it clearly has a civilian impact. And so part of their grievances are economic grievances, and part of the policy is to create pressure, which is why it was called that. But that does not that's not the whole picture, right? It's just a part of this much larger picture where people have all of these other legitimate grievances that have nothing to do with sanctions. So in order to have the conversation, to really contextualize it, you have to understand all of it. That's the whole picture, and that's certainly a part of it. Now, in terms of what the Biden admin has done, and that particular, what I would call a blunder from uh, President Biden in saying that we're going to free Iran, uh, I think up until that point, they've handled it fairly well. I think it's important that uh, multiple members of the administration from the beginning of protests and throughout have made statements in solidarity with Iranian people, uh, have supported protesters. Um, the Biden admin uh, with you know advocates like our organization and other organizations who were working to make sure that the Biden administration addressed uh, sanctions that were affecting Iranians' access to the internet on the U.S. side, right? So you have the Islamic Republic that's trying to cut off uh, Iranians from the internet, but then you also have sanctions that inadvertently help them do that because there are some tech companies that don't allow access to their platform. These are American tech companies that don't allow access to their platforms to Iranians because of sanctions. So they immediate, one of the uh, immediate steps by the Biden admin was to update General License D1 to General License D2 to ho- and meet with these tech companies to hopefully, um, you know, mitigate that, to make sure that at least our sanctions weren't helping the Islamic Republic to cut off the internet to Iranians, right? And so there are steps that can be taken, but the idea that you have a U.S. president saying we're going to free Iran is problematic for several reasons, starting with the fact that it plays directly into the propaganda of the Islamic Republic. That is the language that they use. They're like, these are not organic protests. These are rioters. These are agitators. This is being fomented from the outside. And unfortunately, a lot of people on the American left have picked up on that discourse and repeat those points, despite the fact that they're not true. These are organic protests. These are Iranian people who are protesting. They have agency. They have legitimate grievances. But when the U.S. uses that language, it plays right into the hand of that propaganda, right? Because now they say, see, they're saying it themselves. They are going to intervene. So there's that problem with it. The other problem with it is the much more obvious one, in my opinion, which is how? How do we intend to free Iran? We haven't freed anyone, right? This same president, President Biden, one year ago, a little bit over a year ago, specifically said that our mission in Afghanistan was not nation building. Our mission in Afghanistan was fighting terrorism, that the U.S. is out of the business of nation building. So how are we planning on freeing a nation now? A nation that is has twice the population, uh, a nation that has a much more entrenched and strong government than what existed in Afghanistan when the U.S. first invaded, than was the Taliban. You know, it, what 
we're looking at multiple decades of U.S. failed militarism, decades of failed militarism. Um, the Iraqi state is still extremely unstable. Libya is still in a civil war. Afghanistan, 20 years, $2 trillion, thousands of people dead. Taliban was replaced with the Taliban. So there's no precedent for what he is talking about. And this brings me to my third point, because that is never the interest of the United States. It is outright to say it is the same thing when the Islamic Republic pretends that its militias are there to free people, that it's an active resistance. It's the same kind of propaganda that a state uses when, in fact, they are acting in their own national interest. The reason why the U.S. is not liberating people is because it is not in the business of liberating people. That's actually one of the most honest things that Biden said last year. That is not the business of the U.S. They are there in U.S. national interest. And so it is difficult to imagine a miraculous scenario in which all of that precedent is suddenly gone. And the U.S., a country that has many of its own domestic issues, I mean, millions of people very, very dissatisfied with the current state of the country. People who talk about, I mean, in my lifetime, in the last couple of years is the first time I've heard talks of civil war in the U.S. I've never heard that. And now suddenly we have people who worry about that in the U.S. So you have these domestic issues in the U.S. You have millions of Americans who live in poverty, millions of people who are dissatisfied with their own state. But somehow we're not responding to that, but we're going to go save people in another country. I mean, it's it's the fact that the, that's why it's so problematic. It's problematic across the board, because in reality, we are not in the business of saving anybody because we've never done it. And it is a it's a dangerous line to take because we don't even know what it means, right? To state that publicly without actually explaining what that means, uh, to my mind, and that's why I call it a blunder. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I think Asa makes really good points. You know, I would say that I, I wish the United States had the track red record and the legitimacy for such lofty goals of, of freeing another person. His basic history just does not align with those statements, right? I, you know, I wish the United States never overthrew Iran's democratically non-communist government in 1953, or the democratically elected government in Guatemala in 54, or in Chile in 73. I wish that the United States wasn't establishing Iran's secret police in 1957, the Savak, while it was talking about freedom in Eastern Europe, against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. I wish that when Saddam Hussein was using chemical weapons on Iranians, the United States wasn't giving him political and diplomatic cover at the United Nations, while also giving him satellite information as to where to use those chemical weapons. I wish that when Biden talks about freedom in Iran, he didn't vote for the US-led invasion of Iraq that has led Iraq to be essentially a failed state to this day. I wish the United States was not supporting human rights violating regimes like Saudi Arabia, one of the world's worst, or the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians. Uh, in some, when, when U.S. political leaders make these statements, I simply just don't trust them and their, the intentions behind those statements. I'll just leave it at that. I think that is uh, maybe the best place to end we have ever come to on one of these uh, podcasts. Uh, American prestige, folks, that's what it is. Uh, Asal Rad, Puya uh, Ali Magam, I want to thank you both uh, again for coming on the program and uh, buy their books, folks. Check them out. Uh, and uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having us.